spring break to you. Hope you've enjoyed it. For those who actually who had a break, um, some of you have real jobs, so you have to work, and that's great. Um, guys, we've been walking through the first letter to the Corinthians since last fall, and over the last few weeks, uh, we've been in this uh, section of the letter where Paul is addressing how the church should act uh, when they come together and, and worship in this house, um, especially how they should be using their spiritual gifts that God has given to his church and how that should look. And so we've seen this in uh, chapter 12, 13, and 14. And now, um, man, we've got a lineup of hot topics today, don't we? Yeah. Um, tongues, prophecy, women being told to be, keep quiet. Um, you know like when you, um, you're holding things and your hands are full and you have an itch and you just so desperately want to scratch that itch? You know what I'm talking about? Right now, you have a lot of like hot topic itches. That's what I'm trying to say. There are things right now that you're like, ooh, tongues, let's get into that. You know, ooh, prophecy, let's get into that. Or what's this women thing, you know? And you have all these itches and you're like, oh man, please scratch my itch. And um, I am going to do my best to scratch your itch. But um, what I really want to just point out before we dive in is it's really important to realize that although this chapter is, it's populated with topics that make us itch, um, the place that God is wanting you to itch is not in those things. And it's really important to realize that. He wants you to itch. You should itch this morning, if I keep putting it that way. I know it might sound weird, but um, it's not there. Um, just because we itch somewhere and want it to be scratched, my fear is that in simply ripping those hot topics out of this passage, we won't itch where we're supposed to. Where we should itch, in other words, the main idea of this passage, which should be the main idea for us then, is that God's purpose for our time in, on Sundays together is that we would hear God speak, that we would be built up, and that everyone would see and say, God is really among us. That's the, that's the whole point of this chapter, that when we come together on Sundays, that we would hear God speak, that we would build each other up, and that it would be obvious to everybody that God is really among us. So there's um, two major sort of portions or sections of this chapter. The first one is in verses 1 through 25. And in that section, we really get to see what the end goal is of us coming together and gathering for worship on Sundays. Like, what's the goal? Like, what, is, what should we be after? But the second thing that we see in verses 26 through 40 is this necessary means to that end. That if we don't have this thing going on in verses 26 through 40, then, then it's really hard to get to the end goal of what we should have in verses 1 through 25. So uh, first, let's just look at this big section, verses 1 through 25, the end goal of gathering together. I'm just going to read the first five verses, and then I'm going to have to um, uh, reference the rest. Uh, it says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation, or it's a fancy word for comfort. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, 
unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. So before we work our way uh, through these verses here and discover what the end goal of gathering together on Sundays like today is even all about, uh, we need to get some definitions out here, okay? So, uh, and the definitions we need to get out here at the beginning is uh, what is prophecy and what are tongues? So first, what is prophecy? This will be on the screen for you. Prophecy is speaking a timely word that comes from God. And according to verse 3, this prophecy should build others up, it should encourage people, and it should provide comfort. So it's speaking a timely word from God to others. And this whole idea really uh, was first promised in the Old Testament. So uh, it's really important to understand. The idea that men and women would prophesy was a fulfilled promise that accompanied God pouring out His Spirit on all flesh. And so we see in Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 32, Joel, that book you've read so much recently, um, God promises that He is eventually going to create this new covenant with, with these people. And when that happens, God is going to pour out His Spirit. And it says, your sons and your daughters will prophesy then you see that fulfillment begin on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. When you read your Bibles, you see that promise starting. But that promise didn't just end there. It wasn't meant to be lived out in just a singular event. We see that it actually extends into the life of the church age. And people all over Asia Minor and here in Corinth, they're prophesying. And prophecy, though, it's a word from God to men. That's what it is. It's a word from God to men. So it's, it, think of it this way. It's like where God would suddenly bring to mind something within an individual, and they're meant to speak that word into your life. It may be something that they're really cognizant of, or it may not be at all. I mean, for ex just example, in my own life, there's been many times in my life where I'm in a conversation with someone, and they say something, and God uses that thing to expose me. It exposes my heart, or it might encourage me, or it might just speak a word of clarity into my, my life that I've been really hoping to hear eventually. And they might have no idea that they just spoke that into my life. They might have no idea. But it's a word from God to men where God speaks to us through His people. This type of prophecy gift, though, it's, it's not at all the same thing as being like a prophet in the Old Testament. That's really important to realize, okay? It's really important. Because prophets in the Old Testament, they were divine mouthpieces from God. When they spoke, um, that was God's word. That was, thus saith the Lord, Right? And really, in the Old Testament, if you, if you said, thus saith the Lord, and it didn't come true, you actually could be, bad things could happen to you, okay? We won't get into that. But nonetheless, they kind of like foretold things that were going to come, and, but that's not at all what prophecy is here. People in Corinth aren't walking around trying to be Nostradamus and like predicting the future, and this will happen to you on Friday. You know, they're not doing that kind of stuff. That's not what, they're not fortune tellers in the church. And we know this because there could be mistakes in this kind of prophecy, and verse 29 actually tells you, because there can be mistakes, that prophecy in the church must be weighed. People must come to some place where they go, this is from God or this is not from God. Okay, so that's prophecy. Well, what are tongues? What are tongues? It's not the thing in your mouth. What are tongues? Tongues is a speech in a language that the speaker does not know. It's speech in a language that the person speaking it, they don't know the language. Um, Paul most commonly sees this spiritual gift as a means of expressing prayer or praise to God. And so we see in verses 2, uh, in verses 14 through 17, and in verse 28, we see that. 
And what we see in those verses is that the speaker's human spirit is praying, even though the speaker does not understand the meaning. So, the big question most people have is, is it known language or is it unknown language? Well, if you're simply reading your Bible and you're not reading your bias into it, uh, the answer is yes, it's both. Here in chapter 14 alone, we're not going to do this whole look at everything in the Bible when it comes to say about this, but just here in 14 alone, we see in verses 9 through 10 and verses 21 through 22 that tongues in those verses are known languages. The person speaking it, it'd be like speaking Spanish but not knowing Spanish, but other people know Spanish. So, it's a known language, but it's unknown to the speaker. That's what we see in verses like that. So, uh, also though, we see in chapter 13, verse 1, we see a reference to speaking in the tongues of angels, so it's not an earthly language, it's unknown. Or in verse 2 of this chapter, we see a reference to tongues being something that is spoken in quote-unquote the mystery of the Spirit. So, there are other references here even in this chapter that I'm not going to get into right now, but where tongues falls under that category more so, where it's not unknown to the speaker and it's really unknown to everybody. My goal isn't to debate which it is, the Bible just simply says it's both, just telling you like it is, all right? Uh, What Paul spends time sorting out here, though, is that they should desire gifts like prophecy and teaching to be most prominent in the church. Uh, He mentions this same thing at the end of chapter 12. If you were here a couple weeks ago and we got to the end of chapter 12, I told you I'm not skipping this because I'm going to come back to it. So, um, at the end of chapter 12, he like ranks different gifts starting in verse 28 where he talks about first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and at the very bottom of the list, he puts tongues. And he says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. And what he's saying there is, as a church, desire the things that I just put at the top of that list. And the reason he says that to them is because they've completely flipped the list. The people in Corinth love tongues. And when they come together, they're like, this is the greatest thing in the world. And everyone's just speaking, and it's chaos, and no one understands what's going on. It's not building up anybody. It's just kind of chaos. And he says, no, you should get these things reversed. Desire prophecy. And he even concludes chapter 14 by saying, desire prophecy earnestly. He says this in verse 39 and 40. He says, but do not forbid speaking in tongues. So he says, I don't want it to be forbidden, but it's really not all that helpful of a gift. And that's kind of what he spends verses 1 through 25 doing. So, I'm just trying to walk you through that and help you see that. The reason is, is that he's saying tongues is not really a helpful gift when the church is gathered unless someone interprets. And in their context, nobody was doing that. He says it's not really, it's really the least helpful. It's not helpful. And there's a few reasons why he gives this, and this is where I'm going to like kind of do a flyover of these sections really quick. He gives a few reasons why tongues is not that helpful in the gathering of, of, his, of God's people. In verses 6 through 12, he says it's not all that helpful because people won't know what you're saying. Pretty, pretty basic, pretty straightforward. Uh, verse 9, he says that. And he, he gives like an illustration. He equates this to a musical instrument. He's like, let's just say Jake Price is up here on electric guitar and he's, he's strumming the right chords. He's hitting distinct notes but there's no pattern, there's no melody to it, right? We would all look at Jake and we're like, Jake, I don't even, what song is this? I have no idea, right? We know in music 
An instrument is really helpful only when the notes are arranged into the right melody to where when you hear it, you go, oh, I know this song. Right? That we understand that with music, he says the same thing about speech. If it's not coherent, then no one can understand. And so he's telling you the point of even speaking in a church is that people would understand, that people would understand. Verses 13 through 19, he says another reason is people won't be built up. In verse 17, he says people won't be built up. You would just be building up yourself. So he says if you're praising God or you're giving thanks and no one else is going to benefit from that other than you and probably not even you because you don't even know what you're saying. You don't even know what you're giving thanks for. And so that's where Paul even says, I, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And he even says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you. So Paul's like, I do this, but yet when I come together to gather, I would rather speak five, five words with my mind in order to instruct you, to build other people up. Why? Because the church, when we come together, guys, it's not about me. It's about we. Verse 20 through 25, he gives a third reason why, you should, why he's telling them to hold back on tongue speaking, or at least to get it in a check. And he says, because people who are unbelievers, really the word is seekers, and people who are outsiders, which is really the word skeptics, they will think you're crazy. He says, they're going to come in and they're going to say, you're out of your minds, verse 23. That's what it says. And he has this reference to Isaiah 28, 11, which is where God spoke a word of judgment against his people Israel. And that word came to them in the foreign tongue of this invading Assyrian army. So this word of judgment came and Israel didn't even understand it. This is why Paul uses that as an illustration to say that tongues is a sign for unbelievers. He says it's a negative sign that can signal judgment on unbelievers because they believe Christians are out of their minds and therefore they won't listen to the message of the gospel which can bring them to faith. It basically creates a barrier to hearing when that barrier shouldn't be there. Um, I really liked, uh, I'll just give you a personal example. I, um, I really liked this girl Rebecca in high school, okay? And at the time I like, wasn't a believer. I, I was self-declared like I hated God. As I said, I hated God, but I didn't believe in God, which is like a contradiction, whatever, okay? I, I, I like this girl back in high school, but she was a Christian, and she's like, if you like me and you want to hang out, you have to come to church with me. And I was like, okay, whatever. And she went to an Assemblies of God church. Now, I'm not saying this as a condemnation on Assemblies of God churches, okay? Uh, I, know, I have friends in Assemblies of God churches. Um, but she's like, she was in Assemblies of God church, and so she invited me to come to youth group, and I come. And I remember walking in, and it was chaos. Like, people are, like, rolling around in the aisles. People are speaking all at the same time. I didn't know what anybody was saying. I got terrified, and I tried to leave. And there was people, like, trying to prevent me from leaving. And I'm sure they were really well-intentioned, really well-intentioned, because they wanted me to stay and come to faith and whatever. But I was terrified, and I basically entered into that gathering, and I said, this is not for me. I don't know what's going on. These people are out of their minds. As a non-believer, that's what I thought. So when I read a passage like this, I'm like, yes, that makes sense. When a non-believer comes in, they would say these people are out of their minds, and so it creates this barrier. So these are the reasons Paul gives as to why tongues aren't really all that useful when the church is gathered unless there's an interpreter. They're, they're missing the end goal of why they should gather together. So if you, can, if you can pull away from wanting to debate hot topics here just for a second, you see prominently here something that you and I just, we can't miss, you guys. 
we see that God is an actively speaking God. God speaks. If you walk away with anything in these verses, you need to walk away with that. That God is a speaking God. And He speaks actively to His people. Right? When they come together to gather. Our goal is not to come together and to simply take notes. Our goal is not to come together and just hope we learn something. Our goal is to come together, you guys, and hear from God. And they weren't able to hear because everyone was talking. We, we want to come together and be, be encouraged, be enlightened, be comforted, maybe be rebuked. We want God to reveal Himself and for God to reveal our hearts before Him. Some of us, we, we view church like a lecture hall where this is a time for us to come and to attain knowledge. But this passage would tell you that's not the end goal. Some of you would think that the point of church is, is it's like a social club, right? That the, we, we come together to have friends, and, and it's not ultimately that. Or some of us view church as an event to sort of dispense, hopefully, spiritual highs or something like that. Well, we know that the goal of church is not just merely to have a good experience. Hopefully, all these things are happening. But the church comes together to not only do those things, but preeminently to hear from God, to encounter our living God who's revealed to us primarily through His written word, but also through each other. What does this do? Why should we care about this? What's the ultimate goal? Okay, if this is like the foundational thing that God speaks, what's the goal? Well, it's pretty clear throughout this, this whole thing. The goal of us gathering together, guys, is to be built up, is to be built up. You see this word build up all throughout. In verse 4, build up. Verse 5, build up. Verse 12, build up. Verse 17, build up. Verse 26, build up. Right? He's saying that you might be built up, that you might be built up. This is like the theme throughout. If you want to throw in the words encourage, instruct, actually the number of references goes through the roof. It's pretty obvious. Like when we come together, we should be getting built up. But what does it even mean to be built up? Well, the image is really a, an image of a house, and the, the house that the New Testament has in mind is actually the image of the temple, that God, you guys, is, He's building something. He's building a temple, and the cornerstone of that temple is, is Jesus Christ Himself. So, just think about that. If that's what God's doing, if He's building something, then the goal of us coming together is to contribute to that end. I mean, just imagine you work on a job site. For some of us, that's hard to imagine, okay? But if you work on a job site, imagine showing up to a job site, and you show up, you just worked hard the day before, and you show up and you start tearing everything down. You're like, you know what, I'm just starting over today. You know, or, or maybe you don't tear everything down, you just show up and you just like linger around. You don't really do much. I'll confess, many times I've driven by job sites and I'm like, is that all that's happening, you know? And, and you, you, you watch these job sites, and if nothing changes for years, you would drive by that job site and watch people standing around, and you're like, well, what is the point of this? Nothing's being built. Or you would be doing the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing, and that is contributing to this end of something being built, something being established. The idea is that we are being built through one another by God, which, think about that for a second. That implies that we are not finished products yet, but that God is making you into somebody 
that you are not today. God is making us into somebody, and gathering together should contribute to that end. So the way God reveals Himself and the things spoken to us, they should comfort us, guys. They should encourage us. They should contribute to us becoming more and more like Jesus. So don't get distracted with all the itching because it's pretty clear what the big idea of this chapter is. They're not coming together to build each other up. They're actually using their spiritual gifts as mirrors to promote themselves versus instruments to build up one another. So when we come together, according to chapter 14, my goal, even if I just show up here on a Sunday, is that I would come into a gathering like ours and that I would seek to use the gifts that God has given me to build up our faith community. And the same would be true for you. And do you know what the outcome will be? What does this text tell you the outcome will be? What does it promise you? If this is how we view worship together, what does it say? In verse 25, it says the church, guys, actually becomes an attractive community to skeptics and seekers. And you actually might see people coming to faith in Jesus. I mean, do you see what the Word of God does to our hearts? It says, in those verses there, the secrets of our hearts are disclosed. God, when He speaks, His, His words spoken in our gathering, it exposes me. And the response we see is humility and worship of God. And, and what is it that should be said by seekers, by skeptics, by anybody who's present in a gathering like this, right? What is it that should be said and noticed when we come together for worship? What does it say? It says people should know, they should see, and they should say, God is among you. I see it. God is among you. That's like the greatest compliment if I ever have somebody come and visit. Some people, once in a while, do that. They'll call me and be like, it's obvious that God is among you guys. And I just, that's like the greatest thing in the world because I'm like, that's the point. That's the goal. Because we're being built into this people that God lives in and with. God's presence should be obvious. There should be a powerful and clear display that God is among us. Well, how will we know? What does it look like when God is on display? What does that look like? Well, for the Corinthian church, it meant everybody was going crazy. Everyone was just doing their own thing. But what does it look like according to this chapter? Well, it's not chaos. It's genuine awe-giving worship to God. That's what you see in verse 25. It's having our hearts convicted and disclosed. That's how you know God is among you. It's, it's leaving this place built up and not torn down. That's how you know God is among you. Right? It's even seeing outsiders become insiders. That's how you know God is among you. Those are distinguishing marks, according to this chapter, that signal that God is among you. That's how you know God is among you. It's when those things are happening. You don't, know, you don't see God physically face-to-face. You see things that God does happening. It's like if, uh, if you were to walk around town today, and you see everyone carrying a fishing rod and a fishing vest, and they have fish they caught, right? You would go, there is a river among us, right? There's, there's water somewhere, okay? We know that, right? We, I could go on and on. If you see people walking around with these, like, Target shopping bags, you would go, what? Target has finally come to Corvallis, right? Like, our, our dreams have come true, Right? You know, finally, a, a bigger box store than Kmart, you know. Um, nonetheless, like, you see these signs. If you see people walking around with coffee, you would go, a coffee shop is among us. Like, we get the idea, right? You see things, and you go, ah, this is here. The same is true. How we know God is among us. Our hearts being disclosed. People are being built up. Outsiders are becoming insiders. People go, God is among you. 
You are one. Well, what's the necessary means to this end? If that's the end goal, we want to get to that end, what's the necessary means? We see it in verse 26 to 40. And Paul begins this section in verse 26 saying, when you come together. So let me just quickly say, this is so helpful because it reveals to us a glimpse into what the early church would do when they came together on a Sunday. It says, when you come together, you get a window now. And there's a lot going on here. There's a bunch of do this and don't do this. And it's important to realize here the attitude that each one of us should have when we come together for worship, because don't miss what it says. What does it say? Each one has. Each one has. It says each one has. That means you. Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a, a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for what? There it is again, building up, right? Right, each one has. What does that mean? It means there's no sidelines on Sundays. It means that every single one of us is in the game. No one's here to watch. We're all participating. That's what it means. Everyone participates. Yeah, you might not go, hey, Dan, let's do um, God of Wonders. It's been 20 years, you know? Let's do that one, you know, or I miss Blessed Be the Name, or what, you know, like we're not going to just shout out songs and Dan's going to, you know, do an open mic for us or something. You know, that's not maybe the point of what this looks like, but the heart of this is there. We're all coming with something, right? And so I just think it's worth asking when you come on Sundays, like, what's your attitude? I'm like, what's my attitude? What's your motivation? Is it to receive something or is it to give something? Because the window that we have into what the gathered church does makes it very clear that our motivation in gathering should be to give and not receive. It should be to build others up, not simply be built up. So just think, if each one brings something, well, then what do we need? Like if everyone just brought something and did whatever they want and they're like, I got my thing, when do I get to go? And everyone just went at the same time, that would be chaos, right? So what do we need? If we all contribute, what do we need? We need order. And that's what this whole section's about. Order is the necessary means to the great end, which sounds like really unromantic, doesn't it? Right? It's like not very spiritual, right? We're talking about tongues and, you know, woo, you know, that kind of stuff. And then it's like order. You know, it just sounds like he's robbing us of our joy or something, right? Paul is saying order needs to happen if others are going to be built up and God's presence is going to be realized. I'll just give you an example of how this works. Um, uh, our seven-year-old had a, a performance at school the other day, elementary school performance, a few grades, it was a packed house, okay? And I was holding my two-year-old daughter, Isla, and I was like, hey, look, there's Eden. She's up there singing. And my daughter, Isla's two-year-old, was like, I'm going to go see her, right? So she's up there on stage singing, and I'm chasing my two-year-old, trying to make sure that she doesn't run up on stage and just think that she can hang out with her sister up there while there's a performance going on, Right? And so she's upset, it's a little awkward, you know, people are looking a little bit, you know, um, that kind of thing. But why wouldn't I just go, oh, whatever, she can do what she wants. Why would I do that? Well, because there's supposed to be order. Like, we know that. Like, if, I, if we just let whoever do whatever in even a setting like that, people are going to be like, well, this is a waste of my time, right? If I just went up there and everyone's singing and I'm just talking, I'm doing whatever I want to do, you know, and I'm taking away and robbing all the kids of their glorious spotlight moment or something, right? Right? Parents would leave, and they would go, well, that was a bummer. 
that didn't accomplish what we were there to accomplish. We wanted to take pictures and videos and see our kids singing and post it somewhere, you know? Like that was the goal. And we all got robbed of that. We know even in a setting like that, there has to be order if the end is going to be accomplished. The same is true even in the church, even though it might sound unromantic, but the end goal is extremely romantic, you guys. It's so romantic, right? There needs to be order. If I'm gonna build up the church, if God's presence is gonna be realized, I can't just come in and function however I want and try to seek some spiritual high. We need order. This order is laid out for us here. They're specifically told here that if someone speaks in a tongue, to go one by one, which shows that tongues, just as a side note, they're not ecstatic speech. It's a controlled act. It's not some out-of-body thing. He says, no, just wait your turn. So much so even that he says, if there's no interpreter, just pray and be quiet to yourself. They're told to be silent and not add to the disorder. Then if someone has a word from God, he says, speak one at a time. And then it says, let others weigh what is said. So he says, if you have a word of prophecy or something like that, he says, speak it one at a time. And it says, let others weigh what is said. The reference to others is actually vague. I think it's vague for a reason. It's just a reference to some group of people. But it's not the speaker. The speaker's not weighing what they say. Someone else is weighing what they're saying. These words of prophecy, again, they aren't prophecy like the Old Testament. They can have mistakes, and therefore they need to be weighed. So if someone comes up to you and says, hey, the Lord told me to tell you this, don't just take it as some word from the Lord or something. That could be very dangerous. You would want to bring it to people and have it weighed, right? This then leads to your greatest itch, right? Verses 34 through 36. Let me scratch it for a second, okay? Women are told to be silent. Strong language. It says it's shameful or disgraceful to speak. But they should instead ask their husbands at home. So if you're single, sorry, right? Uh, well, this seems to us that we should just, many of us, we're like, well, I'm just going to cut this part out of the Bible. I'm going to throw it away. Some of you are like, let's just take all 14 out, right? But I love 13. 15 is awesome, right? The resurrection stuff, that's coming, guys, right? Well, no, let's not do that, right? This, this, this is a lot, as David said, this, God's word does not return void. What is this about? What is this about? Well, as always, context is king. When you read your Bibles, context is king. And when you look at the context, what's being said here is actually very clear. Most people read the strong language here, and they rip it out, and they don't look at the context. And they arrive at a conclusion, very well-meaning, because they want to follow God's word, and they say women can't talk in the church because that's what it says. It's really simple. But just think about it. Didn't Paul just say in chapter 11, verses 5 and 13, specifically, for those of you that were here, didn't he say that when women pray and prophesy in the church gathering to cover their head? So why is it that women in chapter 11 are praying and prophesying in the gathering? There's talking, for sure, right? He's permitting them to pray and prophesy there. So what do you think? Like Paul wrote chapter 11 late at night, you know, he was cramming, and then he got up the next day, didn't look at what he wrote, and then just continued on. And then someone's like, hey, man, this doesn't make sense. And he's like, oh, yeah, I was, I was really tired, you know? And um, yeah, I shouldn't have said that. Right? Do you think that's what was happening? Well, obviously, like, no, right? What must we conclude then? If women are praying and prophesying in 11, but here they're told to be keeping silent, how do, we, how do we understand these things? Well, again, context is king. This has to be referring to a different kind of talking. 
It can't just be all kinds of talking. Well, what does the context tell you? What is it that women would want to speak up about in the gathered church? And he's telling them, just don't do that. Well, he says they desire to learn. But this isn't just like, we don't want women to learn. What is it that people are wanting to learn in this context? This is the clarifying description of what they're talking about in verses 33 through 35. It's the desiring to learn. So they have questions about something that is being said. There's something they want to know. So why would he tell them to be quiet? This is all, you guys, it's a reference to this whole idea of weighing the prophecy. So people are saying stuff, and everyone's going, well, is this of God or not? Everyone's asking questions, everyone's talking. And if everyone's talking, imagine how unhelpful that would be, right? Can you imagine the chaos? So what seems really clear is that Paul is forbidding women to speak up and to weigh prophecies. That would fit the context, especially the context of other people that are being told to be silent in the church. So according to chapter 11, women can prophesy. But here, when it, seem, uh, it seems that when it comes time for the gathered church to weigh the prophecies, it, it, it's to see if it's from God, that in order for there to be order and according to the law, which is what he says, which is a reference to the creation narrative, which we looked at in chapter 11, he says women should be quiet and let men ultimately lead the church in discerning if this is really a word from God or not. So the quietness that women are told to have, it relates to the weighing of what is being said. If you think it's, it's, it's more than that, you really begin to have some contradictory things on your hands. Now, I, I realize that when I say that, it probably upsets many of you, okay? Um, some of you are upset because I've just said, this doesn't mean that women can't speak in the church, and you, you think that women should not be able to speak at all. But I'm saying they have a prophetic voice, and they should speak. But, but some of you are mad because I've said women aren't the ones that God has ultimately decided to lead in the weighing of what is being said, right? Please know that I'm not standing here trying to just give you my opinion. That's just the balance of what it seems that Scripture is teaching here. Now, we also must realize this context is very different than ours. Again, our, our services, they're not chaotic, right? They're, they're very ordered, I guess. Um, they're not chaotic like theirs were. And so our gatherings also, they're much larger than what a house church in this day would be like. So this is how this would work today. We don't just say, I don't get up here on Sunday and go, hey, does anybody have a word from the Lord today? You know, and you guys go, I have one. And, you know, we have some people talk and then all of us go, well, what do we think? Is that true or not? Okay. You get to speak into each other's lives normally when you come together and gather. And I think prophetic things are probably happening as you're doing that. But if there does come a time where someone truly senses that God is putting something on their heart that they want to speak to the church, a timely word into the life of the church community, all that person needs to do is to come and talk to me, come and talk to Davey, come and talk to one of the guys on our elder team, and then our elder team would weigh that. And if we truly sense that this is a word from God, then we would ask you to go and to speak that over the life of our church. That's how this would function if it were to function on this day. So on a Sunday that might be happening, or maybe at a community forum or something like that. So again, I've probably scratched way more uh, than I really should. I felt I needed to. Um, but here we see, guys, God calls for decency, and He calls for order in the church as a necessary means to the end of being built up and realizing that God is among us. Well, why does God call you to order? Why? It's because God is, you know, like type A. He loves things organized and slick. Is it because he's a good Westerner in his thinking? 
He likes everything controlled, you know? Well, we are told why in verse 33, and it's not pragmatic at all. It's rooted in the nature of God. The reason why there should be decency and order in the church, which is what it says in verse 40, is because of what verse 33 says. It says what? God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of peace. He's a God of peace. God isn't unclear. His, his vision and purposes are precise, guys. They're laid bare before us. He's building something through us. He's putting his realized presence on display when we gathered. And so there needs to be order because God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of peace. God brings peace. And therefore, if God brings peace and God is peace, then our relating to one another should be one of peace, I mean, just think about how God is not only peace, but He has brought peace. That's the message that we've believed and received, and that's transformed our lives. Look in Colossians 1. This will be on the screen. It says, and Jesus, you guys, He's before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. We just sang this. And Jesus is the head of the body of the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Jesus might be preeminent. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in, uh, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus' cross. It was through the cross, through the blood of Jesus, that we've experienced ultimate peace. We were enemies of God. We were on the run from his good rule and reign in our lives, yet God has pursued us. He's loved us, even when we wanted nothing to do with Him. And in our unreconciled, broken relationships with God, there was only one way that could bridge that gap. There was only one way where reconciliation could be found, where peace between us and God could be experienced. This is the message that we've received through Jesus' perfect life. We've received it. It's through His perfect life that He could be the perfect sacrifice to bring perfect peace between us and God. So we have peace with God through Jesus. We are reconciled. There isn't a billion personal Jesuses that each one of us are reconciled to. We're all reconciled to the same Jesus. And if we're all reconciled to the same Jesus and there is peace within God and He's made peace between us and Him and we're reconciled to the same God, there must be peace in our churches. And when there's peace in our churches, people will say, God is among us. Because that's who God is. If this is our reality, if we're now the spiritual house that God lives in and is building until, until the day of our Savior's return, then our goal is to build up. It's to display God and to organize to that end. And just a few weeks ago, um, we had birthday Saturday. It was... Uh, my son Tucker and Isla's birthday around the same time, so we had family come over. We celebrated them both on the same day. It was a beautiful Corvallis day, early, you know, uh, what's the word? Early 60s? It's not it. Whatever, it was like 61, okay? I'm, I'm losing track of the term here, okay? Low, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, low 60s, thank you. Um, Gus complained that he was too hot right? Like a good Oregonian would, <laughs> right? He's like, Dad, it's too hot. This summer heat, it's too hot. He said, can you go blow up the pool? 
you know, blow up the pool, it's summer. I was like, buddy, this is not summer. This is not summer at all. It's barely spring, okay? It's barely spring. But in his mind, it was summer, okay? And, and comparatively to winter, yeah, it felt like summer. We all were complaining a little bit, which is really sad. But here's the thing, right? When summer arrives, it puts spring on the map, doesn't it? Like when summer hits in July and August, we go, oh, now I know what spring is. If we never had summer and we just went from winter to spring to fall again, then yeah, spring would feel like summer. That would be summer to us. But we know what spring is because we know what summer is, don't we? It puts it completely on the map. If there was no summer, then spring would feel like it. So here's the thing. Many of us think a worship gathering is simply for us, that it's my lecture hall to learn, that it's a place I try and get a good experience. If that's what we walk away with, you guys, and that's what we're trying to live into in terms of thinking that that's the goal, that's the aim, that's the purpose, we're like Gus calling spring summer. We're falling short. Those things are good things. When we really see what summer is, what the goal is of us gathering, those things find their place where they should be. Summer is not Summer is God not simply giving you information. Summer is God disclosing the secrets of your heart so that you know the living God and you genuinely worship him. That's summer. It's it's building others up. It's leaving this place and feeling that something has contributed to the great end that God has for your life of looking and being like his son Christ. That's summer. It's knowing that God is really among us. That's summer. And when that becomes our summer, then spring gets put in its place. As may we be a people that gather in such a way to where the skeptics in our city say, God is really among them. The God of peace is really among them. That's the end goal of our gathering. Every Sunday, every Sunday, each one brings, each one brings. Let's all rise to our feet and let me pray. Lord, I pray for every church in our city, Upper Calvary Chapel, for Northwest Hills, for Suburban, for Grace City, for Calvin Presbyterian, for Grand Avenue Baptist, for First Baptist, God, for Adair Christian, for Christ Central, for Corvallis Evangelical, for Christ Church, for the Branch, for Valley Springs. God, may we be people who want more than anything to build each other up to where it'd be so obvious to our naked eye and to the non-believers in our city that you are real that you speak 
that you are among us. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Guys,